Hello, everybody out there on the interwebs. This is Brian Beller from the Aristocrats, and you are listening to the Prague Cast. Welcome back to another episode of the Procast. And as you just heard, uh, on the phone or in the Zoom room today is Brian Beller from the Aristocrats. Uh, great to have you on the Procast, Brian. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, the Zoom room. There's a <laughs> uh, every single time I hear something I rhyme like that. There's a dance song from the '80s or the '90s or something. All, all I want to do is go zoom, 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 and that, it's just a terrible <laughs> song. But you, I can't not think of it when you say something like that. Hopefully, no one knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> I just wanted to say maybe you should do a cover version of that song. <laughs> <laughs> God. Please, God, no. Okay. Um, yeah, let, let's talk about some music that that uh, yeah you've been doing recently or that that's uh, about to come out. I mean, you have a new uh, live record coming out from the Euroscrats called "Freeze: Life in Europe." Um, yeah, uh, it, it's you know there are shows that we were uh, we were doing right before the COVID lockdowns began, and uh, yeah, I mean we're very very fortunate because we uh, got both our uh, for the you know what uh, tour, which is our most recent studio album, you know what, which came out in summer 2019. Yeah, we did uh, North America in the summer of 2019, and then we did Europe in two parts. We did six weeks at the end of 2019, and then we did another six weeks at the beginning of 2020. And the last show was scheduled for March 5, 2020. <laughs> and, you know, we're all, we're all very familiar with these dates now, you know, yeah, like yeah. when everything shut down, which I believe was March 10 or 11. And yeah. that was the official kind of the whole world just stopped. <laughs> and uh, we were in, uh, so we were deep into the tour cycle already, you know, like show number 70, 80, 90. And, and we were in Spain and uh, I felt like, you know, uh, we were recording every show. That, that we weren't doing it for any specific purpose. It was just one of those things where the engineer had a Pro Tools rig digital setup and just, it was just easy to capture it. So we were like, why not? And, you know, it was kind of a soft initiative in our band. We were listening to a couple of the shows from the first leg of the tour in Europe. And we were like, all right, that's cool. But maybe we should put up a couple audience mics to see what we get, you know, whatever. We weren't really thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Then of course, when the shutdown happened, Uh, and Guthrie's over in the UK and Marco and I over in the States. And, you know, we, we don't do Dropbox albums. We believe strongly in getting together and doing that sort of thing. It's like, well, you know, what can we do for the fans, uh, and to kind of keep our voice out there? And we were like, you know, we've got all these recordings. So we started going back into them and we, we, uh, I kind of zeroed in on the Spain shows because I felt like we were peaking in a way around then. And, uh, and there was a show in Valencia and a show in Bilbao and a show in Sevilla, not Valencia. It was Sevilla, Murcia and Bilbao. That's correct. All right. And, uh, and we were, and I, I felt like we had something there and we all listened to it kicked it around back and forth. And, and, uh, and, you know, it's always a bit weird to go back and listen to your live performances and start thinking of, Oh, is this a live album? Uh, because you get a little self-conscious and, you know, is this really the right one? But I felt like these recordings were not only us with like the stuff that we had, that had accumulated and instituted uh, throughout the world tour, you know, because there's certain things that only happen to music if you take it on tour, but also there were unique things that happened in those shows that were super cool. The monitoring was good on stage. We could hear each other really well uh, and just some magic stuff happened. So 
we whipped it all together and, and we called it freeze live in Europe 2020. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Um, I mean, you guys started out about 10 years ago, right? In 2011 as a trio in this constellation. So yes, it, January 14, 2011 at the NAM show on uh, a one-off show. We weren't the aristocrats. We were just <laughs> Guthrie, Brian and Marco doing a one-off at the Anaheim bass bash, you know, <laughs> improbably it was for a bass focused concert, you know, it was ridiculous in retrospect, but, uh, but they had asked me uh, if I wanted to participate with three other really, really great bassists, uh, Steve Lawson and Norm Stockton and Brian Bromberg and Scott Ambush from Spyro Gyra, four others actually. And uh, I had played there with my own band and my solo project the year before. And I, I didn't really feel like I wanted to do that again. And I had just been in, uh, in Russia, in Vladivostok of all places with Marco and Greg Howe. It was a thing that Marco put together. And so I thought, let's just do that. Cause that's a, that's a cool configuration. No one's ever heard the three of us play the NAMM show before. <laughs> and then as the story's kind of been told a few times already, Greg, Howe about a month before something came up and he couldn't do it. And we just started looking for people who could possibly replace him. because I didn't want to cancel the gig. And a guy on Facebook had been writing me about how great Guthrie Govan was. And I'm like, who? And he's like, Guthrie Govan. And, and so we found him, which wasn't easy to do because he wasn't online. He wasn't on social media. He was completely absent from the internet. And, uh, we found them and we got together. We did one rehearsal. We did that one show and then, you know, magic happened and we all looked at each other and we were like, should we be a band? <laughs> yeah, let's be a band. That was 10 years ago. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have to say, um, uh, I, I was lucky enough to catch you guys uh, three times live uh, so far. Um, it was all around the, the, the second and third album, I think. Um, the first time was here in Munich uh, in a small club called the Backstage Club. Uh, it's like a like a very very small stage in the corner, and um, then the second time uh, where where we properly met for the first time was of course the Generation Prog Festival in Nuremberg, where I was the oh, stage yeah. manager. Yeah, I remember uh, that gig. Yeah, and and there, I, there, I didn't really have time to 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 really enjoy your performance because I was too busy working, you know. But there was but, a lot. There were a lot of bands played that. Uh, there was a lot of good bands at that gig. I remember. Yeah, it was it was you know Pantsabilet from Munich was, yes. was playing right before you guys. Uh, it was uh, it was amazing, and then uh, luckily I had the opportunity to see you on the on that same tour uh, a couple of months uh, weeks or or yeah later when you stopped in Munich for for a normal tour show um and and uh yeah just having you seen you having seen you guys live playing live together i i can totally imagine that 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 moment that first moment when you when you like you know looked at each other and said do we want to be a band Hey, let's let's be a band. It's like that's so yeah. totally you. Well, <laughs> you. You know, it, it was weird. You know, you have these things. People's chemistries is people's chemistries, and I remember when, like, the first song that we played in the first rehearsal, and just everything just worked. That doesn't usually happen. You know, usually there's a little bit of push and pull. You're trying to figure out how people sound, where they place the beat, all the rest of that stuff. And we just played it. We just, it was Guthrie's song, Waves, because of course there were no Aristocrat songs then, <laughs> only our solo stuff. We finished it. And we just looked at each other like, okay, that works. 
<laughs> let's do the next one. And, and they were all like that. It was really weird. Uh, of course, it makes a lot of sense in retrospect. Once we learned more about each other, got to know each other better, personalities, musical sounds, influences, all the rest. But in the beginning, you're just, you don't know. Nobody knows. That's the magic, right? And, it, and it's a live thing. That's the thing, is that it was always about playing live. And so we make the studio albums, you know, we, we, we try and make the compositions, not just about like vehicles for soloing. It's not jazz music. It's not like, here's the head. Now we're going to blow for 10 minutes and then we're going to play the head. And then that's the song, you know, they're rock songs. They have form and we like to have fun with them. And we don't really make sure that there's melodies in there. You know, I'm a big believer in melody, not just riffs or whatever. And, uh, and, you know, we try and make it something that's fun to listen to. And also maybe a tune that you might go home humming, which I think is a cool thing. Uh, but in the end of the day, it is about the interaction. It's about the live performance. What happens on the studio albums is just a, it's just a blueprint, you know? And then we go out there and then we play it live a hundred shows, 120 shows, and then something completely, you know, next level happens. So yeah. that's, uh, I that's act- the vibe. And, you know, this is our third live album. Uh, and I feel like every one of them has their own kind of flavor about where we were as a band, what we were doing with the material, uh and all the rest um yeah i i I actually wanted to ask you um being a a a band that is like very very focused on the live thing and that like as you said this like it is about playing live um i'm curious about when you when you when you're in the studio um writing and um recording the studio albums how how much is usually um improvised uh, as a trio in the studio and how much is like written beforehand or how how much do you work on the structures and the and the compositions as such and how much do you improvise and and do you uh, and do you still like looking back at the studio albums or at the at the most recent one um do you still at least um record the 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 backbones of the like the 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 of, of the songs as live as a trio in the studio yes 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 the bottom line is a yes and and so you know that's what i was saying we're not a dropbox band we've never made a studio album like that now we do write on our own we we are all capable of making our own demos I can program drums and play shitty guitar. Uh, you know, Guthrie is a great bass player. It's totally unfair. You should hear him play bass. Uh, and he can program drums, although you tell, he'll tell you that he can't. Uh, and Marco is a really good guitarist, you know, and he can get around on bass too. So we can all make what we need to in, uh, in order to get a complete demo. Uh, so that we just are able to present to each other. And then, you know, we know each other now a lot better, so we can play to each other's strengths, which is fun. Uh, but either way, we kind of present each other with these demos and then we talk about them. Uh, and then we just show up, you know, kind of knowing what to do. And, you know, we know each other so well now that we know what parts are composed and what parts are, one would say, comping. If you're just, if it's a chord, series of chord changes in a vibe and there's room for you to improvise, or whether it's a composed line, you know, you can tell when, it's, when something is actually composed. And then when there's a solo section, of course, it's a solo section. So, you know, uh, I go back and I listen to the first album and of course, you know, we're, we're, 
on the one hand, you know, we listen to and we all cringe a little bit. We're like, Oh God, you know, it's like, if we, you know, we're all kind of embryonic versions of ourselves in a way, uh, you know, I feel like, especially like I was, I had a lot to learn about, you know, improvisational and I've learned so much from playing with Guthrie and Marco over the last 10 years. I go back and listen to the solo sections of some of the stuff in the, in the first album. I'm just like, Oh, but you know, that's all a part of the thing. And uh, there's a raw energy on the first album that I think is really cool. You can hear us just kind of exploring, getting to know each other. And then on culture clash and trace Caballeros, it develops further. Uh, you know, on Trace Caballeros, the third album, we did something different. We actually played shows of the live material before going into the studio. It's the only time we've ever done that. We did it a couple shows local in L.A. And then we went in and, and that affected the way that the that the recordings went down uh, in a way. It, it formalized them a little bit. On, on the one hand, it was cooler because they were a little bit of a later stage of advanced development. But on the other hand, it wasn't the raw thing. The yeah. raw thing happened on stage the first couple of times we played it. So. <laughs> You know, it's a balance. It all kind of depends on what you want. Now, for the latest album, uh, we did not play shows live before, but we did rehearse in the studio for three days before we started tracking. And I feel like it's our best album and our most communicative album. I feel like the compositions are the strongest. And I feel like we were the most comfortable improvising with each other. I'm like, you know, the solo section of Terrible Lizard is wide open. Uh, the solo section at the end of Last Orders is a, was a completely accidental improv thing that was supposed to just be a fade. Uh, and what are other examples of that? Oh, Bonnie and Clyde. There's a huge long guitar solo in Bonnie and Clyde, that whole section. It's got a structure, but you could, you know, you just do whatever you want inside those chord changes. And then there's stuff like uh, Marco's When We All Come Together, which is it was pretty highly structured, uh, you know, for the most part. Uh, even D-grade Fuck Movie Jam, actually, it's got a big solo section in it, but there's a lot of structure in that. So <laughs> I think that we all know when it's time to honor the composition and when it's time to stretch out. And that's one of the great things about being a band that's been around for 10 years. We can tell in each other's compositions and also as each other, as musicians, when it's time to push and pull and when it's time to just play the part. Wow. Great. Yeah. Um, looking, looking at the live album and, 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 and hearing the live chemistry that's going on. And of course, uh, extended solo section he's here and there. Especially, of course, uh, Marcos in "Get It Like That," yeah. dedicated to Neil Peart. Um, I, I think that's a fun th that that might be a fun thing to to sit down with with other Rush nerds and and uh, play "Spot the Rush" song. Which how many Rush songs he he, <laughs> he played there? <laughs> well, it's funny, you know. I mean, uh, we when the European tour, like I said, was split into two halves. Yeah. Half of it was at the end of 2019. Half of it was the very beginning of 2020. And of course, Neil passed, Neil appeared passed in between the two tour legs, right at the yeah. beginning of 2020. Yeah. So, you know, Mark and I, and I used to screw around with Rush stuff and soundcheck sometimes. You know, we both listened to a lot of it when we were, when we were younger. And, uh, and that stuff leaves a heavy imprint on you. And, uh, and also, Marco has a relationship with Alex Lifeson. We've been collaborating with him uh, on a couple of compositions. Yeah. So uh, when that happened, it was like heavy, you know, and, and we played a couple of things in soundcheck again. And, uh, and then uh, Marco was, threw something into his drum solo on the first night of the European tour. And it got a really nice reaction. And we were like, you know, you should, you know, do that every night. You know, I think he was a little bit shy about doing that at first. And we were like, no, man, it totally works. Uh, and so then it became a part of the second leg of the European tour. It wasn't obviously wasn't a part of the, the stuff before that. Uh, 
But yeah, so there's a little surprises in there for the Rush fans. But also, you know, the album only has six songs on it. It's a little over an hour. The songs are long. Uh, five of the songs are from the new album, You Know What? The only song that we put on there from a previous catalog is Get It Like That, which is a 20-minute, it's got like a big eight-minute drum solo in it. But it's a huge, long, wide-open canvas for, uh, you know, Marco and Guthrie and myself to just go completely nuts. We just go in whatever direction we want. And you could hear there's like a part where it goes into like a reggae thing and then it goes into this double time thing and there's all sorts of funk stuff and there's like little, you know, disco send-ups and there's an audience participation thing. And we really kind of turn it into a, a, a big, long, fun thing. Uh, so that's a great vehicle for us to be able to do that. But the five songs from You Know What, which are D-Grade Fuck Movie Jam and uh, Spanish Eddie. Oh, Spanish Eddie. There's a song that's got some wild solo stuff in it. The opening improv and that, that's that's crazy. And the middle of that thing is designed to be kind of like a how many genres can we fit, you know, <laughs> into a minute. Uh, that that goes all over the place. It starts to swing, ends up as double time funk. There's a part where I'm playing the bass line of the chicken where uh, – and Guthrie's playing the melody, the flight of the bumblebee at the same time. And, <laughs> and Marco's playing this, you know, this fast break beat. And it's just complete mayhem. So hopefully there's enough uh, improv stuff on there to satisfy everybody. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, what I was wondering is um, when you go on tour and um, you, you just said that this um, tribute to Neil from, from Marco Uh, developed uh, from the first, like he was a little bit shy and did it on the first uh, gig, and then you encouraged him to incorporate it for the rest of the of of the leg of the tour. Um, uh, yeah, looking at the whole set list for the for the whole for the whole show, um, do you, when you go on tour, do you do change it around um, from from date to date, um, or we actually don't. We actually don't. We, we, I, I think it's funny. You know, there is an element of, well, of course, we want to do stuff different every night, but stuff different happens every night anyway inside right. the structures. And so at some level, you know, we want to make sure that we're delivering to the audience a show that works, you know, and, and two hours is a lot of notes. You know, we don't want to be a band that pulls up short, you know, and just does like a, an, a, a 60 minute set. You know, this isn't a jazz night of the big potato. But uh, also we don't want to do three hours because that just, people just get exhausted. You know, it's just too much, too much. So especially instrumental music uh, and especially only three voices, you know, guitar, bass, drums. So we always feel like, like two hours or a little over two hours is just enough. And then the question is, we want to make sure that we have a songwriter balance because, you know, we each write our own songs. And so we wouldn't have a show where we have 10 songs written by Guthrie and then one song written by me and one song written by Marco. So we're constantly trying to find the balance between new material and the classic stuff. And then between the songwriters and then the dynamic pacing, you know, you, you, you can't have a show with six ballads in it, but you can't have a show with zero ballads in it either. So what we find is that uh, we usually take the first five, 10, maybe even 15 shows of a tour and try out different sequences. And then at some point we get one that really locks. And we can feel it because we can feel the energy of the audience kind of swinging back with and forth with us. When things get really manic, they go up. When things get mellow in the ballad, they go down, they come back up. They're not tired. You know, like all these things really matter, especially because we're doing some talking during the show and introducing the songs, introducing a bit of humor to the thing kind of in a, in a Zappa spirit. We don't ever want to lose the audience and the wrong sequence 
can lose the audience. You know, if you don't put the right songs in the right order, you can lose them. And so, uh, you know, I think it's important that uh, that those things are paid attention to so that people can so people really leave a feeling like they got a great show. Uh, and I'm never worried about the not being enough kind of variance from night to night because there's just so many opportunities for improvisation yeah. that that's going to happen anyway. Yeah, it, it it sounds a little bit like a like a science in itself, but I but I also think um, the way you guys work, it's more of an intuitive thing that you feel like the three of you feel the the same thing, and and you have like the moment it clicks, and and you see, okay, this this really really works. Let's stick to that. That you have like yeah. a mutual agreement without having to 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 analyze it too much, right? No, we, I mean, you know, we do talk about it, you know, we're not, we're not telepaths. Uh, you know, sometimes that stuff happens on stage while we're playing, but no, we have a little debriefing after every show where we go, you know, if something was like, that was cool. That worked or something didn't work. We're like, Whoa, let's, let's not do that again. You know, that stuff happens. That's a part of being on tour. And it's a great part of being on tour because only by touring material like that, can you really understand uh, what a piece of music is capable of? both in and of itself and in a show in front of a live audience and whether it belongs in the beginning or the middle or the end of the show. There's just a lot that goes into it. And, uh, and, and I like that challenge. I like the challenge of, of formulating the best possible show, uh, taking all these factors into the account. And in the end, of course, hopefully the audience doesn't, it's not thinking about any of that. They're just thinking, wow, that was a great aristocrat show. That's then if that happens, then we win. Our job as the band is to put some thought into that. I think. Yeah, um, let's uh, cover a little bit the, the the technical basics. The live album um, is as all Aristocrats um, releases. It's gonna be released through your own label, right? The uh, Boeing. Yes. <laughs> the Boeing label. Um, yeah. Did you, when you started out with the Aristocrats, was it like? Was it uh, like a, an easy decision to say, hey, we want to put out the music ourselves and don't want to be uh, dependent on any label or whatever? Well, I, I don't want to turn this into like a big business seminar or anything like that. <laughs> no, but <laughs> I can tell you that for whatever reason, when we decided to form, there there were a couple of uh, entities that were interested in in bringing us into their world. And they, and they were, you know, really class organizations and good people or companies to be associated with. But I'm a numbers nerd and I used to, you know, work in business for SWR Base Amps and I could, spreadsheets and stuff like that. I'm a weirdo like that. And so I just started kind of like doing the numbers on what would, you know, the um, cost and what we would get in these royalty rates and versus if we did it ourselves. And of course, there's pros and cons about how widely you can distribute and blah, blah, blah. It seemed obvious to me anyway, that uh, we were going to do a lot better if we tried to do it ourselves, even though that would mean it would be a lot more work for us having to sit there and figure out how many copies we're going to press of the album and where that's going to go and blah, 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 watch our cash flow. You know, Marco had put out a lot of albums already by the time we had met, uh, both as a solo artist and also as a member of some very, very popular German pop bands. So he knew the business. Guthrie doesn't really care about the business aspects as much, but he definitely values his independence and his artistic integrity. That's really, really important to him. So all these factors kind of ended up pointing in the direction of let's just do it independently. Uh, and 
I'm really, really glad we did because I, I feel like even though we definitely sacrificed some things in terms of like global reach, whatever that means these days, uh, that we got to call all the shots and we got to do it all on our own terms. And I think in the end of the day, that, that means a lot. Uh, you know, we're, we're a self-managed band, essentially. I managed the band from 2012 to 2018. I don't do that anymore. Uh, we have a great guy. Uh, named Ricardo Capelli, who was our European booking agent all this time, who's also handling that now for us. And we just really try and keep it all in the family, very, very tight knit and as low overhead as possible, you know, because it's harder and harder to make it work these days. Uh, without touring, it doesn't work at all, of course, which every band knows, uh, thanks to COVID. But we, but we all knew that before COVID too, with the way that the you know the value of recorded music and what's happening with streaming and everything like that. And you can make money, but it's it's harder and harder to do it on the recorded music side. You got to go out there and play. Uh, but if you're on a label and there's you know levels and layers of management and all the rest of that stuff, even just the touring aspect of it is hard to make money on. So in the end of the day, you know we all got to. We all got to pay the rent and make sure they don't come and take the furniture away. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, you just mentioned uh, the fact that touring is not possible at this point still. Uh, how have you been keeping yourself busy the last year? Um, did you um, work on any new projects, other projects, uh, on new solo material or anything? You know, I I, I think the 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 fashionable thing to, to say in this is, Oh yeah, this is like a great opportunity for me to like do all those things that I always wanted to do. And I was, you know, too busy to be on tour. And I did, I made five albums and like, I just had this complete creative explosion. <laughs> and the truth is, is that I haven't done that. <laughs> I, I actually have been going, but I feel like so fast for so long that I really took my foot off the gas pedal and just, and just took it all in for a bit. Uh, you know, uh, Uh, one of the reasons is because a couple years ago, I did take a year off of the road and do nothing but demo my own double progressive concept album called Scenes from the Flood, which is 18 songs in 88 minutes. And it took a year, you know, it took three years to think about it, took a year to demo it. It took another year to record it. It took nine months to mix it. And it finally came out in September, 2019. Uh, and it was about, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the inherent problems in human nature and how that plays out in, in the real world. And then, and then COVID happened. I was like, next time I'm going to write an album about kittens. But uh, <laughs> it was one of those things where like, I got that thing out of my system. And, I, and, and then of course the aristocrats, you know, what was written and recorded at the same time. So a lot of creative energy kind of poured out of me from 2018 and 2019. So when 2020 happened and everything just stopped, I was just kind of like, <sighs> <laughs> I just took a big breath. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, uh, I definitely took a couple months and did almost nothing that was, you know, and just focused on some personal life stuff. And, and it was wonderful. It was, it was, I mean, COVID's not wonderful. COVID's awful, but, uh, and, and it's terrible that it took that in order for people to kind of just take a step back and realize what's really important in life. I feel like I'm not the only person who went through that process. Yeah. Uh, But of course, I've been doing some stuff, you know, uh, started working on the Aristocrats live album after taking a couple months off. Uh, I was the one who was really kind of knee deep in the sessions and curating that stuff. Uh, I'm recording uh, an album for Joe Satriani at home right now, which is uh, the first time that he's ever done a remote recording album. He uh, also has never done a, a Dropbox album on his own solo artistry. 
he's of course done remote recording, but not for his own album. So that's exciting. And there's a lot of really cool material coming in there. I spent some time making a video for a song uh, from scenes from the flood, my solo album, where I kind of, you know, went into the whole phenomenon of all of us artists being at home, unable to tour. And all we can do is kind of post videos to social media and then just, you know, hope, hope that they like go viral and they, they get attention and maybe result in sales, maybe not, but at least keep us visible. You know I mean? Like that whole phenomenon, that weird thing about everything being in the box yeah. and, uh, and the songs were called a quickening and Steiner and ellipses. And I dressed up as like six different characters and, you know, really tried to make this, you know, funny conceptual, uh, but also hopefully somewhat meta serious uh, take on the world that we live in now and how the, the computer in the box is everything and how weird that could get. Uh, so that's out there on YouTube and that, that, you know, making, making conceptual videos takes a lot of work. Uh, so that cured me of making, making me, making one of me wanting to make videos for a while. <laughs> uh, and then I've been doing sessions for people who've been hitting me left and right, you know, like, because they, everybody knows that we're all at home right now and you know, we're available for work. So in the past where I would have been in between tour legs and probably not able to kind of do some of this stuff, uh, I can do it and it's fun. It's been really cool collaborating with some people and getting to know some new people, but I am not, <laughs> I am not flooring every day, just putting in 16 hours in front of the screen, in front of pro tools, trying to, you know, create my way out of COVID panic. I'm not, <laughs> I'm definitely taking more time to sleep and to hike and to enjoy the outdoors because I live in a remote area. You know, I can do that without running into other people uh, and all the stuff that goes along with it. I feel like as creative artists, we need like input from the universe in order to be able to produce creative output. And I felt like as this era began, it was a good time to take a step back and just absorb it all. And then if I have something to say about it creatively, then that will happen in its own time. So we'll see how that goes. That, that, that sounds. Uh, I mean, I'm really happy that you were able to 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 use this time for yourself and uh, and 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 yeah, get get some catch some breath and uh, and get new energy and, and new creative uh, input. Um, yeah, and now I know that there's a lot of artists out there who did do the other thing. They who were just like, <laughs> "That's it. I'm making the record I always wanted to make," and that's awesome. Great for them. I'm but not you, you, down talking you, that at you, all. I'm just you, you describing had, my you, own experience. Yeah, but you had just done that with scenes from the flood. Which yeah, I, which it's I, like you know, it's. I have a couple ideas for new aristocrat songs in my head, and and they're and they're percolating. Uh, but you know, I, I try not to rush these things unless there's a deadline. You know, if there's a deadline, then you just do it. And but but uh, but you 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 you're, you're, right you're, you're gonna set the deadline for yourself, right? At one yeah. point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, whenever that happens, uh, you know, we all got to be in the same room or else it's not an aristocrat's album. Right. And it's not going away. But I, but, I, but I wanted to say about Scenes from the Flood, I did listen to it again today because I knew we were going to talk, of course. And um, yeah, that brought me back to 2019. And especially that I think it was, was it the first single, The Storm? Um, yeah, that huge song. Yeah. And I was obsessed with it. I have to say, it's like momentous and like like epic proportions hitting you. Um, so and but but the the whole thing, uh, as you said, it's it's ninety minutes. It's uh, 
it's it's huge and it's very very diverse as well. Uh, but yeah, that particular song that that floored me actually. Yeah, that you know what's funny is that that's the very first song that came to me uh, uh, for the album. I was uh, and it came to me in 2013. There were two songs that came to me in 2013 that uh, that were the cornerstones of the beginning of my writing for the album, and that was one of them. I was I just was starting this is a very, very difficult experience to describe. I was going through some difficult personal life stuff, but I was also, I was experiencing on a, on the personal, very, very small circle level, but then also I could see how it was translated, translatable to kind of a greater society level. And this concept started swirling in my head that, you know, how tenuous our hold is on, on reality and, 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 and our well-being as a society and how embedded in all of us in human nature, how it could all go to shit very, very quickly if we weren't careful. And why as humans, we allow that to happen. So that, you know, it was just with something like that hits you, you know, and you're experiencing it personally, very kind of intimately, but also you see this other bigger concept out there. You know, you have to stop and ask yourself, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to throw four years at this, you know, cause it's a dark energy in a way. Uh, and eventually I just convinced myself that I had to do it. <laughs> and I'm glad you did. And uh, yeah, because, because not only that, that, that song, I mean, that song will, will always stick out for me uh, because it kind of hit, uh, hit, hit a nerve uh, for me. Where, where are you from? I'm from, I'm from uh, Germany, from Southern Germany. I live in Munich, and, uh, okay. but I grew up in, in, in Stuttgart, but that's all Southern, Southern Germany. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I, I've been there. I've been there many times. I only ask because the, 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 the chord progression and the harmonic undergirding of the song, the storm is based on a Serbian folk song. Oh, nice. Called uh, Stohane Sini Stohane. And uh, it's a gorgeous, sad little ballad. And it's all on just one. Uh, the version I heard was just on one acoustic guitar. So there's an acoustic guitar breakdown in the middle of that song that kind of tries to honor that original inspiration. Uh, but I, I, I always, for people who are really interested in that song, I always try and mention that because that really is where it came from. Amazing. That, that's really, really interesting. Um, having you on the, um, on the show today, so to speak, um, I, I have to take the opportunity to, um for for our fellow bass nerds out there if you yes. would 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 do a quick um gear rundown what you've been using on the live tour yeah well it's real simple for basses uh i use three different mike lowell custom basses uh each one serves a different tonal purpose there's my kind of the one I've been using for 20 years, the, the, the 1999 uh, Modern 5, which has the maple fingerboard, the red one. Uh, and that's the bright sound, the bright, aggressive sound. Then, uh, you know, for example, that, would, that was used on like D-grade Fuck Movie Jam, but it was also used on Oh No, that kind of, that kind of overdriven sound. Uh, and then I have a really kind of vintage sounding instrument that it's a passive five string PJ, also Mike Lowell, they're all Mike Lowell. 
And that one's got a, a alder body and a rosewood fingerboard. And it's really designed to kind of be like one of those old vintage kind of, you know, sounding fender bases, a little bit of kind of natural overdrive in the pickups when you get on it, like uh, Nathan Watts on those old Stevie Wonder records. That's the bass that's on Get It Like That uh, on, the, on the live album. And then there's this more modern uh, inspired uh, instrument called, it's a signature instrument called BBMF5, which is designed to kind of be like, uh, uh, well, those other instruments are basically kind of souped up fenders, the bright, aggressive jazz bass, the really warm vintage PJ. This one's designed to kind of be more of a modern, almost like Spectre-ish type instrument. And of course that means EMG pickups. And that's a completely different sound. So uh, I was originally inspired by the Alex Webster uh, signature bass that Spectre used to use. He was using EMG 40 DC pickups and the EMG BQC preamp, uh, an older body with a maple top and an ebony fingerboard. And that produces a really cool kind of mid-range focused compressy sound with a really tight glassy high and a deep low. And I just really like the instrument. I even got a couple of Spectres and I use them at home for recording, but they lay out funny in my, in my hands for some reason, the geometry of them just, just, I never could quite feel a hundred percent on them. So, and those are neck throughs also, which is we're getting into bass nerd stuff now, but it's just one piece body. Uh, the Mike Lowell's are all bolt-ons. And so I had them do a bolt-on version with those woods and those pickups and electronics, but like in a package that I felt really, really comfortable playing physically. And that's the bass that you hear while I'm playing live on uh, When We All Come Together and Spanish Eddie uh, and uh, yeah, on those two songs. It's the red bright bass on... Uh, on D Great Fuck Movie Jam and Ballad of Bonnie and Clyde and Last Orders, Guthrie's beautiful ballad with the really, really difficult uh, chordal progression in there. Uh, so yeah, uh, three different bases, three different flavors and uh, gigantic Galleon Kruger rig, you know, the MB Fusion as a preamp into two 2001 RB power amps into four 410 cabinets. Uh, I, I, it's just so I have the headroom so that I never have to play hard because that's what really good and consistent tone comes from is not overplaying with your velocity in your hand, just because you can't hear yourself. That's, you know, that, that really, that's not a good way to go. You want to make sure you have more power moving more air than you need on stage so that your right hand can really control dynamically what's going on. Uh, and then I use Diderio pro steel strings on all my bases. I've been with Diderio for 25 years. They're awesome. Uh, and I can't say enough good things about them. And then I've got a big mess of pedals. I don't want to go through the whole pedal board, but uh, those are the big three. Mike Lowell basses, Galleon Kruger amps, and the Dario strings. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to listening to Freeze live in Europe uh, more as I just uh, had one playthrough before I jumped here into this call. Um, there's, as you said, there's a lot of stuff uh, going on to discover. Um, last week, my co-producer Randy and I had a very special episode talking about our favorite bass players. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, what would you say, uh, who would be your favorite bass players as, as a fan or as a, like, a inspiration in your own musical journey, upbringing and, and learning to play the bass? Yeah. Well, I mean, like, you know, it's, I don't listen to these days. I don't listen to bass players just, because they're bass players, you know, because I'm listening to kind of music as a whole. Sure. Uh, it doesn't mean there's not a lot of great bass players out there today. God, there's so many. I, I don't even know where to start. 
but uh, the, the originally, you know, like I like different bass players for different reasons. I like John Paul Jones because he made Led Zeppelin groove along with John Bonham. It was just an amazing, you know, he had a melodic sense too, not just that deep groove and the dark tone that he had, but like you listen to those melodic, those solo breaks on the song remains the same the song. Uh, they're just really fantastic and so creative. Uh, so I, I listened to more John Paul Jones than Getty Lee as a kid. Uh, but of course I was learning the rush songs anyway, just because there was just so much going on there. Uh, I really, for slapping, I learned to slap from flea, not from Marcus Miller. So I'm a rock slapper, not a kind of a, you know, uh, R and B fusion slapper for lack of a better phrase. Uh, and, uh, so my thumb is down and it sounds a little bit more kind of rough and nasty than smooth, which I think is plays into the more aggressive kind of experimental rock stuff that, I, that I'm doing, which is fine uh, for like really hard overdriven stuff. I mean, Tim Comerford from Rage Against the Machine was a huge influence on, on everything I ever wanted to do with an overdriven bass sound. I don't play with a pick, so I got to get that sound with my fingers and that's how he does it too. And uh, just a huge, huge influence on everything that I was up to. Cliff Burton from Metallica, you know, I mean, it was hard to hear him in those early mixes, but the big thing was that distorted wah uh, from the solo from anesthesia. I use that today as a, as a solo voice. And that came straight from him. Wow. Uh, you know, uh, like it, it, you can hear it's all over the aristocrats catalog. There's a, in sweaty knockers, there's a bass wah solo in D grade fuck movie jam. There's a bass wah solo and I use it wherever I can. It's, it's super fun. Uh, it's a great way to get the bass to cut through the mix too. When you're soloing, which is really, really hard. If you're just using a regular clean sound, uh, Scott Tunis, the guy who played a uh, bass for Frank Zappa's 1980s live bands is a, as an intellectual rock and not just rock, but music genius at being able to kind of quickly reharmonize and, and rethink harmonic structures uh, on the fly in the middle of what may seem like a traditional harmonic arrangement. Uh, his brain and his hands just move faster, even though he's hammering an old P bass. It's amazing. Like he knows all this like classical counterpunctual stuff. And he plays it all like the bass player for the Sex Pistols with a pick on a really, really rough old P bass. Uh, and of course I listen to the Jocko stuff and I, you know, I can never sound like Jocko. I, I do the world's worst Jocko impersonations. <laughs> you know, the guys out there who like, you know, have that really great dark, warm sound, like, you know, Matt Garrison and Damian Erskine. And, uh, you know, I mean, Gary Willis is the inspiration for all these guys, but uh, and Evan Marion is great. And, God, there's a, there's a bass player named Steve Jenkins, who's great. And there's so many guys out there who do a great Hadrian Farad, Yannick Wasdala. I mean, it goes on and on. Uh, thank God those guys are doing that so that, you know, no one has to hear my sucky version of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm, I'm super happy that you mentioned uh, all these uh, amazing and influential bass players uh, because we didn't have them on our list uh but they are definitely uh uh worthy of a mention and uh they played a big role i think in the history of um rock music and uh uh seeing them being yeah. being influential to you and and also uh having you explain that for example the 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 overdrive wah um thing that you took from cliff that Yeah. Of course, now that you say it, it's like... Well, yeah, I know it's so obvious, right? It's like hiding in plain sight. But like, that's because application and context is everything. Yeah. You know, 
I'm using it in the middle of uh, a rock fusion outfit, which sounds totally different than Cliff doing it as the intro to For Whom the Bell Tolls. Yeah. But it's the same shit. <laughs> Great. Yeah, well, my, my three picks uh, were um, actually um, Tony Levin, Guy Pratt, and uh, Jonas Reingold. Jonas Reingold, I mean, I mean, you know, Guy Pratt and Tony Levin, they're kind of cousins in a way in, in, in what they do. Yeah. I mean, they're obviously individual players, but the dark and the smooth and the fretless, you know, yeah. thing. Uh, but Jonas Reingold, you know, I'm late to the Jonas Reingold party. Uh, I, we, we did a gig uh, at, in Chicago at the Prague Festival, and Jonas was there with Car Mechanic. Yeah. And I'd never seen Jonas Reingold live. I'd never seen him work through those, you know, those compositions that, that he does. And uh, just the playing and the sound. And that's the thing. I was going to say Chris Squire before because he influenced me in kind of a mental and a melodic capacity. But I don't, I never sat down with the pick and did the whole Chris Squire. And listen to Jonas. I mean, like, you know, obviously he listened to Chris and a lot of progressive guys have listened to Chris, but it's not just about that. It's just, His whole thing is just really, really super cool. I was, I didn't know anything about the Flower Kings or anything. <laughs> uh, so uh, it was only a couple of years ago that I discovered that whole world. Yeah, great, great, great. And I'm, I'm super jealous that you managed to see Car Mechanic live because I didn't. And uh, the, their first uh, three albums are some of my favorite progressive rock albums. They're incredible. And There were some great songs in that set that I'd never heard before. <laughs> I, I never heard any of it before. And I'm just listening to it one song after the other. I'm just like, well, that's great. That's great. That's great. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm happy that, with that, we, that we got to talk about Jonas a little bit. Uh, I think his birthday was last week. So happy oh, birthday, happy birthday again, Jonas. Jonas. Um, at the end of our show, we always uh, have one last question for our guests. And that is, what's in your Walkman? What have you been listening to lately? Is there any, anything in particular that, that you want to recommend? Oh, you know, I, I, it's funny. Uh, uh, right now, I'm kind of really focused on the, on the Joe Satriani demos that are, that are coming in. And, and, and I tend not to do too much casual listening when I'm in the middle of a deep recording project. But uh, just... Uh, Just let's just let's let's just casually look at the stuff that's recent here. Uh... So um, maybe while you're looking, I can I can say that I I was checking up on on what 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 Marco Miniman was was uh, up to lately, and and I discovered that he actually has a, a new EP coming out with with Randy McStein on 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 Saturday. Um, may 1st so when this episode drops it's gonna be out already any oh, cool. kind of light and it's uh yeah it's gonna be a Bandcamp uh, release again um so yeah hop over to Bandcamp and check out mcstein and miniman's any kind of light ep uh i haven't uh heard it but i mean th those guys are crazy and and it's gonna be very very interesting f again for sure Yeah, I mean, the amazing thing about Marco is that he is just an absolute uh, songwriting machine. I mean, like he just he has to put out an album every eight months or I think he doesn't know what to do with himself. It's just it's crazy how much he writes. And and, and that's a, a thing in the aristocrats, too. Of course, Marco writes much more prolifically than Guthrie or I. Guthrie and I really, really take a lot of time to kind of generate material. And he doesn't, you know, it's just completely different 
modes of operation. You know, there's a new band called Nome Sani. I'm not quite sure exactly how it's pronounced, but it features a guitarist that I feel I wish that more people knew about uh, named Teddy Kumpel. Uh, he's the guitarist for the Joe Jackson live touring band. He's a New York guy. He's a really cool, quirky kind of jazz rock artist. It's another trio. Uh, and Nome Sane is spelled N-O-M-E and then S-A-N-E. Uh, that that's a they have a new album out called Time Will Shine, which I think that people people should check out. That's pretty cool. Uh, and you know when I'm listening to metal, you know there's there's uh, I, I'm a little late to this, but uh, Mr. Bungle put out an album called The Raging Wrath of the Easter Bunny, yeah, which I really enjoyed because I felt like it was like a kind of classic. The material, the story behind it is a kind of classic thrash metal uh, that uh, <laughs> was written in the '80s when Bungle was a thrash band, but they never released. It's all great, yeah. man. It's yeah, really, it's really, fun, really man. great material. I listen to uh, and, you know, I haven't been listening to too much. Oh, you know what? I've been getting into old St. Vincent also. Like, uh, I know that she has a new album coming out. Uh, it's called Daddy's Home. Uh, I really dig the first two singles. Uh, and uh, I had Mass Seduction. But it made me want to go back and check out her first album, which I hadn't ever heard. And the first album's great too. I mean, uh, she's super talented. And the production on her albums is always just super, it's always really first rate. That's 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 one I also don't know yet. So I'm gonna check that out. I have uh two two recommendations today. Uh one is a I think a California band as well called Coevality. They have a like their debut album, Multiple Personalities, is also like some really cool um, instrumental fusion stuff with with some beautiful fretless bass going on. And the other one we had on the broadcast last week from Siberia, Pleximens. Um, this guy Evgen Cibulin, he's he's just a monster on a uh, on his. On his classical guitar, and he mixes that with progressive metal, and um, yeah. and it's the, this album, the Maze Within. It's such a cool listen. So uh, cool. I, I realize that I'm on the podcast here, and I'm recommending stuff that's that, definitely not really that's, prog. That's, 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 that's totally so fine. I, I, I have failed. <laughs> not at all. We always say we're we're not the gatekeepers of prog here. Yeah. Well, Saint <laughs> so, Vincent definitely is not prog. It's just like kind of hipster modern pop. But I think it's super cool. There's a lot of really weird influences that go into her productions. Uh, her, her name, St. Vincent is her stage name. Her real name is Annie Clark. She's a singer and guitarist and songwriter who went to Berklee College of Music for a little while, like I did. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, she's, she's, she's really great. Uh, you know, the Mr. Bungle stuff, I, I feel like a lot of uh, thrash metal from the 80s ended up being progressive. I mean, especially yeah. the classic Metallica albums. I mean, those song forms are all progressive. Absolutely. You know, seven, eight, nine minutes long and stuff like that. Uh, and some of that Mr. Bungle early thrash stuff has elements of that. Just really long, weird song forms. Uh, so there's that. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely uh, can. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And yeah, um, yeah it's, it's uh, I, I do. But you know what? Like before I got on this call, I had a morning where I was just listening to like a bunch of Pomplamoose. <laughs> Okay. Are you familiar with them? I I do know the name, but I have no. I, I would 
I would put them like into the indie or alternative box, but they're, I never they're, really listened to well, them. I mean, they do this thing where it's, they're kind of like a, something like a funky jam band, but they also do mashups and covers as part oh, of their thing. Right. And like there, there was a, a, a mashup of, and I'm going to, when I say these two songs, you're just going to go, Oh my God, how come it's just right there out in the open. They're almost, they'll, they'll fit perfectly together. How come no one did this before? Uh, white stripes, uh, seven nation army and yeah. the rhythmic sweet dreams. Okay. Yeah. Just think about it for a second. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They're the I same see. tempo. They got that kick drum pattern and, and, and they have a lot of fun with it. And, uh, uh, and it's, it's super cool. Uh, so and and the bass player is great in that band. They have a couple of and, and but there was this other song. What was the song I was listening to this morning? Uh I can't remember. I'd have to look. Hold on a second. Uh won't take too long. Where is it? Bulletproof. It's just a funky jam. The bass player is just completely going off on it. And uh it's not prog at all, <laughs> but it is cool. But, but it's fun and it's cool, and that's that's everything that matters. Brian, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, so much fun. And uh, as always, it's also so much fun to listen to your stuff with the Aristocrats. Um, yeah, all, all the best with the release of uh, Freeze Live in Europe 2020. Uh, Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, really appreciate everybody out there in progressive music world and beyond for uh, supporting what we do as the aristocrats because we're not a purely progressive band we no. have progressive elements in it <laughs> but uh you know uh for whatever reason we've been embraced by the community and we're really grateful for that so thank you awesome i really hope we can uh see each other live in the flesh again and you guys can go out there again soon and doing what you do best and what you Like you, you're. I always say you're. You know the 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 energy and the fun that you guys have on stage. It transmits to the audience so well. It's it's just a joy to behold and to to to. It's a joy to enjoy. Oh, thank you, <laughs> thank you. Well, soon, hopefully soon. What else can we say, right? Hopefully yeah. soon. Fingers crossed. Uh, yeah. Thank you guys out there for listening and as always, take care of yourselves, take care of your loved ones and listen to great music. Progcast is a Stuist Media podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Progcast Podcast. To learn more about Stuist Media, check out stuistmedia.com. Progcast is hosted and produced by Dario Albrecht and myself, Randy M. Salo, and is co-produced by Janine Stengel-Lewis and Blake Lewis. Our theme music is by This Is Not An Elephant. New episodes of Progcast drop every Monday and Thursday. See you next time, Prog fam. Progcast.